Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our podcast will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service and the occasional interview or ministry resource. We hope you'll subscribe. Now, here's today's message. Reading is from Galatians 3, verse 15 to 22. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promise was spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it is no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions unto the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture was locked up, everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Amen. Good morning again, and welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. Um, I got a haircut since last time. Somebody said I look like a cop. (laughs) Don't know if that was good or bad. Um, So we've been looking at the book of Galatians, and we've been looking at it because we believe... In the fall, we talked about going out towards others, but we believe that Galatians contains um, the engine for why we go out into the world. Um, but before we go any further, we kind of need to take a pause from our regular, our regular programming uh, to note that most secular persons, they don't come to the Bible looking for this engine. In fact, the past 75 years, there's been a huge rise of scholarship uh, that has basically said we can essentially get rid of the Bible. We can get rid of Christianity. We don't need it for morality. We don't need it for purpose, for identity, for uh, um, meaning and truth. We don't need it to do justice. So uh, we, we don't need it. One social activist put it this way. He was at a high school and he was looking at the law codes of the Bible and he said this. He said, listen, we can learn to ignore the bull. I mean, he went on. Let's just, you know, you can... We can learn to ignore the bull in the Bible because we have learned to ignore the bull in there about shellfish and slavery and menstruation. We can ignore all kinds of things in the Bible. In other words, he's saying this. He's saying the the Bible at best lists a bunch of laws and morals that we selectively pick from to back up our values, um, but it really doesn't have that much relevance on our lives at best. And at worst, it actually does damage to those who read it. 
And it, because there's, there's all kinds of laws in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there's actually a law against eating animals with hooves, which means you're not supposed to eat pigs. That means there's a law against eating bacon. Bacon's awesome. Why is there a law in the Bible against eating bacon that we choose not to follow, but then there's actually laws in the Bible that we do follow? Right? That's the question that's out there that we have to get. These are some serious questions, and we can't move out into the world with this gospel-powered engine unless we first deal with these things. So this section of Galatians is telling us, Paul is trying to go through how to hear from God, how to use the law, and then how to um, actually believe the gospel. So we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to look at how to hear actually from God, how do we use the law, and then um, how do we believe the gospel. So first, how to hear God. And this is, this is a recap of where, how we got to this place. Chapter 3, the first five verses, Paul just looks at and appeals to the experiences of the Galatians. Then from about verse 16 to 14, to try to make his argument, he appeals to an example of a famous person that they would have known of, which was Abraham. Now, he's going from verse, starting with verse 15, he's still saying, I know you don't get this, you don't quite get what I'm talking about, so let me give you an example from everyday life. This is the first verse here, verse 15. Let me take an example from everyday life. And he references this covenant this, and a covenant is a contractual promise. It comes from the law uh, courts, uh, that kind of language about um, once you sign a document inside a, a covenant, a contractual agreement, what you have there is some level of um, permanence. Whatever is being agreed upon, at least for the terms given, that you're in. And so he tries to keep, then he tries to back that up, that statement, verse 16, with uh, quoting an Old Testament passage in scripture. This is Genesis 12, verse seven. And he says this, he says, listen, the promises were spoken to Abraham, to his seed. And he says, scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. And what you should be saying now is, what is what's he trying to get at? Why? So what? It's the so what question. Why is he going to this, this, this sort of argumentation? And here's what he's trying to get at. One, the very fact that he makes an appeal to scripture here for his argument. Number two, he actually calls it scripture. Do you notice that? He actually, it says, word script, scripture does not say, that's two. Three, he carefully focuses on one tenth of words in scripture. And four, he rests his whole argument on a singular noun. At the very least, Paul is trying to teach us something important about the Bible. I think there's actually at least two things he's trying to tell us about the importance of the Bible right here. First is this, that the Bible is supposed to be authoritative for you. That we, um, you know, we, we can't miss this. That he couldn't make such a focused argument right here, such a precise point about the Hebrew Old Testament, unless he believed that this was actually God's word written out and that it merited some sort of careful exposition. That if scripture was just a bunch of truthiestic kind of phrases cobbled together over time to reinforce some long forgotten social structure, well then he wouldn't actually have looked at it this closely, but because it's important and an authority for him, 
Look, the whole text is, it's, he's quoting, look at verse 16. He's quoting um, and referencing scripture. Verse 17, he's, he's alluding to it with this 430 years that he's talking about how the promise was given to Abraham and then it was only in Exodus that the law is actually given. And then you go down, he summarizes the law of scripture in verse 19. He reference, references it again in verse 22. If you zoom out and actually just look at the whole chapter three, every verse or every other verse is either a direct quote from scripture or it's a reference to it. Showing that he sees scripture as true, useful, important, and authoritative. True story. Uh, hundreds of years ago, there was a famous minister and he was preaching in an auditorium. It was sort of like, a, I think it was the town hall. And outdoors, it was raining. It was, it was dreary. It might have been a little hot. And he noticed that people started nodding off. He, he, and I can see you, by the way. Um, <laughs> but he, he, you know, the eyes were kind of closing. And he, there was one individual who was sitting in the front row. And the, uh, that person was completely out. In the middle of his sermon, he actually walked over to that part of the stage and started stomping his feet really loudly so the individual would be startled and, and woke up. And I was like, hey, that's a great idea. <laughs> I, I need to start using that. Um, but when he woke up, this is what the minister said, essentially. He said this, woke you up, did I? Good. If I had come to speak to you in my own name, you might well rest your weary head. But no, I have come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. On the authority of scripture, I must and will be heard. I really love that quote because, listen, if I was just up here giving you my opinions, if I was just up here telling you, pontificating on some sort of uh, recent idea that I had, that would be one thing. But I'm not supposed to be up here speaking to you on Michael's opinions and, and thoughts. It's supposed to be on the authority of this scripture. And so it's in the name of the Lord of hosts. And so as much as possible... We're up here trying to try to tell you actually what the Bible is saying. And so this is just a side point. This is why you don't tend to hear us up here giving opinions about this or that American policy. We're not, I am not an expert in American policy. I don't really know. We're not up here telling you about the latest event or this or that. There's tons of columnists and pundits that are doing that all the time, giving their opinions. That's not the purpose of this. We are here, not in our name, not in our opinions, but in God's name, seeking to root and ground all thought, all things being said in this text. Uh, I think that's, that, that's what Paul's trying to get at, about the authority of Scripture. Now, the second thing he's trying to tell us is this. If it's authoritative, then it, should, it deserves more prominence in your life. Uh, notice in verse 16, he says, the promises were spoken to Abraham, and he refers to Christ. And when he gets to Christ, that he fulfills this, this promise, he's actually wanting us to focus on his nature. Jesus was seeped in scripture. If you go to the gospels, Jesus quotes scripture no less than 24 times. It's all the major books of the Old Testament. Not only that, not once, not twice, 10 times when Jesus is making an argument in um, scripture, uh, sorry, when he's making an argument in the gospels, he rests his argument not on one verse, but on one word of one verse of scripture. That's how precise he actually is. If you go to Matthew 5, verse 18, Jesus says, listen, not one jot, not one tittle. And a jot was 
the, the shortest, the smallest Hebrew letter, Leod, and a tittle was actually one part of one letter. And so Jesus is saying, it's not even one part of one word of one letter that I'm actually here to not care about. The Bible, the full Bible matters. Of course, the question I've asked this immediately and we should all ask is this, if Jesus and Paul take the Bible this seriously, why don't we? I mean, why, why don't we? We've said this before, that you are what you love. What is that about? It means um, you tend to, whatever you focus on, whatever you spend the most time on, whatever your, captures your imagination, that tends to affect you and move and change your actions. So this is why um, I, went to, I went to school in, in Nashville, in Tennessee. People there love college football. If you talk to a lot of Southerners and say, college football, their eyes open up. You, up here, they're like, what's a football? It's not as big of a deal. But if you ask the average New Yorker, you say, hey, where's your favorite place you like to eat? Where do you like to go for food? Everybody's eyes open up. Why? Because we like to talk about what we love. And so Jesus talks about scripture because he loves scripture. And one of the deep ironies is Christians say they love Jesus, but then why don't we love what he loves? Because you can't accept Jesus, you cannot fully accept every, unless you fully accept every last word of the life-defining authority of his life, you can't really accept him. I'll put it a different way. Imagine you really want um, a deeper relationship with somebody. Let's say it's a a good friend, or maybe it's a spouse, maybe you're dating somebody, and you say, I really want to get to know you. And that person says, that's great, that's great, I want to get to know you too, let me tell you how to do it, here's how we're going to do it. Let's spend about 10 minutes a week getting to know each other, maybe on Sunday morning for about an hour, and I think we can get to know each other. You would look at that person and say, what are you talking about? That's not enough time to actually, to really fully get to know each other. That's crazy. You can't get to know anybody in that amount of time. And yet if scripture's primary function is for us to enter into relationship with God as we find out his nature, who he is, what he loves, then what makes us think that maybe 10 minutes during the week, maybe about an hour on Sunday morning, that that's actually enough to get to know him? That's crazy. Probably the biggest pastoral issue that I get on a a weekly basis is folks come and say, I believe in God, I just don't feel his presence. The first thing I always say to folks is, what role does the Bible and prayer have in your life? Because you can't get there without that. Jesus quoted scripture all the time in his most desperate hour at the center of when he needed help the most when he's on the cross what does he cry out my god my god why have you forsaken me what's that about he's quoting scripture that's psalms and so what that means is at the core of jesus you prick him he pours out scripture at the core of who he is when his mind is going literally it's going to scripture If he can't do life without it, how the heck do we think that we can do life without it? And I'm not just saying this to you folks, I'm saying this to myself, that Paul feels like, and not just feels, knows that you can't get this gospel power into your life. You can't hear from God unless you actually make the authority and the prominence of scripture real in your life by learning, memorizing, meditating, immersing yourself in an entire book. I can't make And I can't overstress this enough. That's the first thing that I think Paul is telling us. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them.
which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastor and other members of our church community. If you have questions about today's message, send an email to lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our Sunday worship service. Now, here's the remainder of today's teaching. Now, if this is how the role, this is, if this is the role it should have in your life, the next question you should ask is, okay, well, how do we make it have that level of prominence in my life? Great, Mike, you say it needs to be an authority, but how do we let it be an authority in our life? Well, Paul in our text, again, is spending lots of time telling us how to read the law codes, right? It's all about this promise law kind of distinction. Verse 17, he introduces this 430 years. By the way, whatever the law is, it's not nullifying the promise. But he says, well, then, okay, so then the law doesn't matter. No, no, no. Verse 19, why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions. Oh, okay, verse 21. So the law, therefore, is opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely not. See, the whole text is about how to use the law. And I think Paul's doing this because he knows this is the place where so many folks get tripped up. Like our, the person in the, earlier that said, you know, Christians just apply the Bible and the laws indiscriminately based on whatever is best for them. Right? That's actually a misunderstanding of how to categorize biblical law and so anytime you come in the bible to a law you need to actually realize there's actually about three categories you can place it in it's either ceremonial civil or moral so really quickly we need to go through this anytime you get there um you see a law in the bible it's either ceremonial civil or moral the ceremonial laws are the ones connected to the sacrificial system that was related to the tabernacle and the temple and they were designed to show the people of God, the distance between them and God himself. So there was laws against eating certain foods and touching dead animals. And um, all these were actually trying to show that there's no way for you to get close to him. Modern people are so funny. We're like, of course God wants to talk to me. And ancient people are like, wait a second. If, that's, if he's God and we're not, then there's probably some level of distance that we can't actually get across. Now, Jesus, with his life and his death as Savior, he shows up and actually says, all ceremonial laws are abolished. They've been fulfilled in me. This is, you can look at this, look it up in Mark chapter seven. Because he says, I'm the ultimate sacrifice. All the sacrificial system was pointing to the need for someone to finally fill the gap. And I'm that person. And so the ceremonial laws no longer apply. So next time somebody snarking says, well, how come you eat bacon and shellfish, but you, 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 know, you, know, you don't listen to these laws, but you listen to those laws, you say, well, actually, the ceremonial laws no longer apply to Christians, and if I tried to obey them, what I'm essentially saying is that I'm saying Jesus didn't fulfill them, and that would be against Scripture. Now, civil laws are the law, laws and the penalties in the Bible that are no longer in effect because they were given to ancient Israel about how to order their society. And obviously ancient Israel is gone, it's no longer around anymore, and so the only law left is the moral law. By process of elimination, when you read the Bible, you need to say, is this ceremonial? Okay, well, this is, is this civil? Well, okay, no, it's not civil or ceremonial. That means it's the moral law. And that's everything else. That's the stuff, that's the laws about loving our neighbor. That's the, that, this is the laws about um, caring for the poor, being generous with our possessions. 
all the sexual morality law codes, all the Ten Commandments. And these are good things. And guess what's so interesting? We still fail them. We don't love our neighbor as we should. We, we don't have no other gods before us. You know, we don't do these things. And Paul, actually, this is what verse 19 is trying to get at. They're there to show us the transgressions. That means the moral law is not there for our salvation. The moral law is designed to show us our need for salvation. To put it as simply as I can. John Stott, in a commentary I read, he put it this way. He said, it's only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars appear bright. It's only against the dark background of sin that the gospel shines forth. In other words, the law is there to show us our need. Now, I I've, grew up here in New York. I know a lot of people, they come and they say, you know what, I don't need no moral law to tell me my need. And this is our culture. Our culture is telling us right now, you know, who, nobody is allowed to tell you what's right and wrong for you. You do you. And on the surface, our culture, it sounds actually very relativistic. You do whatever you want to do. I actually thought that for a while. But then, you know, has anybody been on social media recently? You, turn, you open up your phones, you go to social media, nobody is saying, you do you. Everybody is saying, no, no, you're wrong, I'm right, I'm going to judge you by my standard. Everybody is at each other's throats. Clearly, it's not okay for you to do you. That, folks, what is that? That's the moral law being acted. Now, you might say, well, you know, okay, that's what they're doing, but I don't do that. You know, I think it's wrong to be mean on social media. I think it's wrong to um, essentially uh, be mean and... and, and uh, beat other people over the head. But if you say that statement, you know what you're doing in that moment? You just created a law. It's the law of I'm not, I think it's wrong. The minute you say I think it's wrong to do X, Y, Z, you've created a law and you're judging other people because they're doing it and I'm not. But have you ever, have you put it, again, turn it on yourself. Have you actually followed that law? Over the course of your life, have you never been mean to other people and judged other people? Have you never beaten them over the head? I mean, no. The laws that you and I even create for ourselves were inconsistent in application, not just out there, but in here. And so here's the point. The point is, you can say all you want, be free, be filled, but the way we live our society is always by law. And the problem is, is once you admit that, there's only one of two responses. You either are running away from the law because it's, it's, it's crushing you, or you're running to it because you think it's gonna fulfill you and give you what you want. And which reminds me a lot of, I think, Luke 15, right? The, Jesus' parable of the prodigal sons. What happened to the younger brother? He said, you know what? I'm running away from the law. I do not want this family. I want my inheritance. I don't want you, Father. I'm out. But the older brother, the, the elder brother, stays at home because he's trying to live up to the law of what it means to be a good son. But you know, when the father accepts the younger son back, he is so mad, that elder brother. Because guess what? He didn't actually want the father either for the father's sake. He wanted what the father was going to give him because he was trying to use the law in that way. Turns out, actually, the elder brother was further away because at least the younger brother came back and knew he was wrong. See, I mean, that means that I, this is how I have applied this. At any given moment, all of us are either being elder brothers or younger brothers. And if I really look inside, inside myself, I think I change based on any given moment I either am the younger brother or the elder brother. I'm the elder brother when I'm actually holding up what I think is good. I'm like, hey, 
How about you? You're not doing what I'm, I'm doing. I'm so great, you're not. When I'm the younger brother, it's this. When I'm either failing or I can't actually do it or I don't really care about the law, I'm like, eh, so what? Who really cares? That's not how we're treating it. It's either one or the other. Both leads to death. And so here's the last point. Last point is this, is how then can we get the Bible and the law of the Bible into our life where it's life-giving and not life-draining? Right, earlier we said you should read your Bible, it should be an authority. Earlier we said that, you know, we should obey the moral law because it tells us God's character and heart. But how do we actually do that if we know that we're either going to be younger brothers or elder brothers with it? We're either going to be relativistic with it or legalistic. Relativistic is, you know what, I don't really want anybody to tell me how to live my life. Relativism against the law. Or, I'm doing everything right, now God owes me. Legalistic. Both don't work. And I think Paul is acutely aware of this, which is why he's trying to jog our memory with like an origin story of the law. This is verse 17. This whole 430 year divide between the promise and then when the law is given in Exodus. Why is he doing this? He's telling us because he's, he's trying to show us the order matters. That when God meets his people in Egypt, he doesn't give them the law and then say, now, um, you know, if you obey this, then you'll be saved. He didn't say obey and then I'll lead you out of Egypt. It's very, it's very important that God leads his people out of Egypt first. He saves them, them first. He frees them first. Then gives them the law and says, now don't you want to obey? And that means the law then functions inside the promise. It's not the promise functions inside the law. And this, this distinction matters, so try to listen closely. If the promise functions in the law, then I have to obey so that God will give me anything. But that's not how God ever works. He saves, he loves, full stop. And now the law is a way to function and resemble the character of the one who loved you. I mean, the best way you can do this is this way. Try to go back to the moment in your life where, you've, where you were in love with someone, or you had a really close friendship, or you, or you really wanted to get to know that other individual. Let's say it's you now. What do you do? You try to find the makeup of that individual. You want to know everything about them. What's the art that they like? What's the music that they like? Heck, you could go, what's their favorite color that they like? If that favorite color is the blue after dusk, but before twilight, that kind of dark blue, and you know that that person loves that, that blue, you know what happens over time in you? You start loving that blue as well because it reminds you of, of him or her. You start saying, what's that art? What's that, what's that music? They love it, and so you love it because you love them. And what, which is so interesting because these are all laws of the other individual the laws of relationship, but they don't even feel like laws. When you're following them, they don't even feel like it. All they feel like is love because you love them. And so you love them as well. You, you, you love those things because you love them, because they love them. That's law functioning inside the promise. And so if we do the, do the self-evaluation, folks, if you're more running away from the law of the Bible, you know what's happening? You probably don't understand the person behind the law. You're probably not getting who he is. When he is saying, give away your money or sexual ethics are of this nature, when you're relativistic with those things, it's possible you don't get the person behind the law. 
Because God's, look at God's sexual ethics. Sex and intimacy are best inside the confines of marriage. That's not because he has a low view of sex intimacy that you know, only certain people get. It's because he has such a high view. He wants it to be so good that he knows that inside the, the confines of a promised covenantal relationship that is now and forever, that only in that kind of trust system can you actually have flourishing sexually, ultimately. That's not, so it, 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 that, that's the person behind the law. When God says, hey, you know what, you should try to give away your possessions, it's not because he wants to like, you know, make you have to keep coming back. It's because he loves us so much, he doesn't want us to be controlled by the materialism of the world that we, that we tend to throw ourselves into. If we have, and I know sometimes I've done this, when I have an uncaring disposition for the law, it just means that I don't get the person behind the law. At the same time, if you're legalistic, which a lot of people are, check a box, be religious, did this, did this, did this, did this. It means that we don't get him either. Did you know that the word promise shows up eight times in the last 15 verses in Genesis 3? It's like Paul's almost saying, if there's one thing that you get, please, please get, we're people of a promise. What's that? Why is he focused on that? Because he doesn't want you to be focusing on the check boxes. He wants you to know if you're people of the promise, the promise made to Abraham, Abraham, thousands of years ago, is hanging out with a bunch of dead animals, torn in two, and God's saying to Abraham, let me be torn in two if you don't fulfill the law. But by the way, let me be torn in, let me be torn in two if I don't fulfill the law, but let me be torn in, to, in, tor, torn in two if you don't fulfill the law. That's the promise. That leads Paul to say, it's not I who lives anymore, it's Christ who lives in me, and because he loves me, because he gave himself to me, I live differently. And this is what this is the last line. Now, faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's the fulfillment of the promise. That's what unlocks that power. If he is ours and we are his, ultimately and finally, forever, there's actually only one question left to ask. There's only one last question, which is this, which is, who are you, God, and what are you about? What do you love, and how, and I want to love it too. Uh, last thing I'll say here, um, last example, uh, for Black History Month, I've been listening to some NPR recordings, um, and I came across one by Laura Smalley. Laura Smalley was a slave in Texas in 1865, and actually in 1941, uh, she was interviewed, and those recordings still exist. And she was recalling about how in the summer of 1865, in Texas, she was still in slavery. Three years before, you have the Emancipation Proclamation in 1862. It was supposed to go into effect January 1st, 1863. And yet, Laura Smalley, two years after that, She's still in slavery along with everyone else in Texas, the other, other slaves in Texas, and she had not been freed. So General Major Gordon Granger shows up in Texas with 2,000 troops and a very simple written message that he says out loud on June 19th, 1865. Now it's always been known as Juneteenth, which is still celebrated today. And this is what the message was. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. 
This, this involves an absolute equality of rights. And Laura Smalley says that same day, these are her words, she goes, I was turned out and I was set free. And yet even though she was set free, she didn't know how to act free. Her whole life, she never knew what freedom actually felt like. So in other words, she was legally free, she was proclaimed free from on high, and yet she didn't know how to live out that freedom. And I think this is important, this distinction is important. You can be declared free, but it's another thing to personalize and identify and make it real to your personhood to actually assert yourself in that freedom and live that out. And I think Paul is saying the exact same thing right here in a cosmic way to every single one of us. That you are children of God, that you are children of the promise. You have been declared and set free. Why are you not living out that freedom? Why are you still worried? Why are you still anxious? Why are you still overworking? Why are you still focusing on what you look like? Why are you still bitter by not getting your fair share of things anymore? You're not living out your freedom. Because if you did, you wouldn't move out to love your neighbors as yourself because the law told you so. You would do it because you were free. You wouldn't join a nonprofit to care for the 80,000 homeless people in New York City because you were worried that if you didn't, God's not gonna love you and that he's gonna look down on you. You do it because your freedom gives you the mental and the emotional bandwidth to care for people beyond yourself. You stop navel-gazing. You stop looking at just yourself and you start looking at the selves out there because when you feel his love and what he loves now becomes your love. It's not law, but love that compels us out into our work, into our businesses to act differently, to be different people. Because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you. If today you don't feel this love, if the law is something you're either overly running from or overly running to, it means this love relationship has not been made real to you. And so what I ask, I I plead with you, make it real now. Take the crucified redeemer Jesus who unconditionally says you're mine, which means we can say I'm yours and there's nothing that can push you away from him. Sit in that space, let that be absorbed into your full being and I promise you it will not be same old, same old. Let that move in our hearts, let's pray. Heavenly Father, You've tried to show us about this covenant promise, about the, 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 how it's final, how this free grace is real. It's, you, we are free. We've been declared free. So often we don't act free. We're bound to, we're, we might be in our, this room right now thinking about what, all the things we have to do instead of just sitting and praising you for who you are and what you've done the love that is overwhelming, the commitment that's overwhelming that we see played out on the cross and now every day in our lives through the Holy Spirit. I, I, I pray, I know we're individuals with concerns and cares. I know we're folks that have needs and, and we need to care for others. Help us to first see our ultimate need was met in you and that gives us the ability and the life and the power and the drive and the, and the fortitude to move out and serve and love and care others. 
Praise things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning into our church's podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our podcast, and we invite you to join us for worship on Sunday. We're located at the corner of West 64th Street and Central Park West. More details can be found on our website, lincolnsquare.redeemer.com. Thanks again for listening to the LSQ Podcast.